May's sponsor of the Spamming Zero podcast is ttech.com. ttech is a customer experience firm that focuses on several different industries, but one in particular is retail and e-commerce to all of our listeners out there. Their website, again, if you need the phonetic spelling of that, it's tigertigerechocharlie.com, T-Tech. I love what they have on their About Us page. The power of big and the agility of small. They're a big company, but they have the agility to do a lot, just like a small company does. I also love it, the fact that they're in six continents, 50 languages, employees globally is 69,000, and their client MPS is plus 71. Pretty awesome. A couple of other things about T-Tech is they're customer obsessed, digitally empowered, and outcome focused. Some of the CX solutions they offer are customer care outsourcing. So if you need a BPO, they can be your partner. Contact center outsourcing, as well as CX solutions and strategy. Reach out to ttech.com. I'm James. And I'm Brian. And this is Spamming Zero. everybody welcome to spamming zero i'm excited about this one i'll tell you why we've never done this before but we have a special guest host one number two we're talking about a topic that i have no business talking about two number three we have a an amazing person that's on the show today and i'm just gonna call her yay yishkova however i'm gonna let her announce her real name right now yay welcome to the show Thank you. Thank you, James. Um, really happy to be here. My full name is Evgenia Alexandrovna Yushkova, or simply yay. <laughs> so it makes it very easy to remember. Uh, really happy to be at the show. Uh, really excited to talk about some really fantastic topics that James has prepared uh, for us. Um, meanwhile, just a little bit about myself and who am I and why listen to me anyway. Uh, I have been in the industry for over 26 years. Um, I was passionate to become a fashion designer ever since I was four and worked through multiple different ways of manufacturing mass market all the way to runway, uh, all the way to helping large retailers build their private labels, multimillion dollar businesses. And today I am sitting in a chair as a coach, as well as a consultant um, to me with me and a few of my uh, colleagues from the industry who are part of my team. We are helping startups, small to mid-sized companies to help build their fashion brands, but build them in an unconventional way following Ye Method, which is all very much process-oriented, very much uh, looking at end-to-end -end process and drives result that drives results uh, and helping you to get the product from concept all the way through launch. Uh, we provide coaching as well as consulting consulting services. So we're really excited to share some of the knowledge here on the call with you guys as well. And then we have the amazing Christina Keen. Christina, tell the audience a little bit about you. Well, um, I head up our, our content strategy here at Flip. Um, and as I like to say, I, um, I do a lot of herding cats and I'm very good at it. Um, I am a dog and cat mom. Um, and, uh, I wear, I wear a lot of black and James likes to uh, make jokes that I'm a witch, um, which, you know, hasn't, hasn't yet disproven that. So, you know, we'll go with it. Witchy vibes are, are good. 
just for the record, I don't do it in a disrespectful way. <laughs> I know. Just so everyone knows, like it's a real joke between Christina and I. But so why why are we having Christina on the show today and and hosting today? Because when I say I have no business talking about fashion, I really don't. I usually wear a hat and a hoodie most days. But they and are color coordinated. Yeah, I match the hat and hoodie, yay. So, like, I got that going for me. Um, But most of the time, you know, I think we need to bring the experts in. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do my best to keep the conversation lively between the two of you. So let's start this show. I want to start by asking you a quick question, yay. We know that you're passionate about this since you were four years old, okay? If you're passionate about this since you were four years old, there's likely going to be some brands that stand out to you. And brands that you think are doing some incredible work today without getting in trouble or anything like that. I'd love for you to talk about some of those brands that stand out today in the fashion world that you feel like are just doing incredible work. Oh, you put me on the spot, James. (laughs) I like that. Um, So a couple of uh, thoughts that I kind of want to talk about uh, in terms of the brands that are doing an incredible work. And I really actually want to talk about more of a private label brands today, because I think there is a presence for that. Um, In addition to more of our, let's call it private brands, um, because I think there is retailers, large retailers that have been in our large influence, really influential in our lives are pivoting towards bringing in more sustainable, more um, powerful product that is stands for the quality, but under their private label, more generic brand, which they are almost turning a game changer because at the beginning, if you remember back when private label kind of, let's take 10, 15 years back, we were thinking if private label brand would be the cheapest and the worst quality, right? Probably, but it's the cheapest. So we go in for the value and what we care is the value. Um, Today, we've seen some of the retailers who are creating private label brands in today's environment that is actually quality driven. I'd say it's even better quality than potentially a uh, compatible brand that they are trying to um, go against, uh, as well as still delivering a product value. And so I think those would be uh, an important uh, aspects to highlight and kind of give a big hooray to some of the retailers that are doing a really great job. Uh, one of the first, I'd probably say, which I know this is going to sound crazy, but I'm going to say that Target is doing a phenomenal job uh, with their private label uh, division, not only from the quality perspective, the they're getting the trends right, they're getting their... Uh, design models, right, in terms of being more um, easy to shop, easy to understand for the consumer and consumer eye, uh, as well as bringing that sustainability factor into their uh, game to be able to build the product um, that is more earth conscious, which is, I think it's really important as well. So definitely a great work uh, there um, from that perspective. I'm looking to also kind of hooray more of the uh, brands who are truly uh, creating sustainable product, not only from the aspect of, hey, I'm going to uh, use a fabric that is sustainable, or I'm going to use um, less water as an example when we dye our products, but the brands who are also looking from a sustainability factor in terms of their processes and in terms of 
how they are manufacturing uh, their products. Because I think there is a lot to say in terms of waste. Um, and waste is a big factor here that we, um, a lot of times we talk about it, but we don't really do anything about it. And I think the brands who are focusing on figuring out how to do their cutting tickets so there is not going to be a lot of waste of fabric uh, or figuring out the processes of how to dye their products um, using less energy and using less uh, water and and, uh, producing less contaminants. I think those are brands that we definitely want to give a big um, hooray towards. I'm not going to lie. Now I'm going to have a much harder time if my wife listens to this podcast preventing her from going to Target. Um. I know, right? (laughs) I mean, they did a really good job. They're doing a really it's a true- good job, really. Out of big retailers, I mean, phenomenal. They're just, they're crushing it. Yeah. I want to touch a little bit on the the sustainability note. You know, when when you said that, immediately what came, what came to mind for me was um, Reformation. So Reformation uses all dead stock quality, uh, or dead stock um, fabrics, excuse me. And, um, you know, every quarter I get a sustainability report from them about what my shopping has done to save the environment. You know, it's, it's you know, a very powerful thing buying a dress and it's even more powerful when, you know, you're saving gallons of water and um, doing something good for the planet. Although then I think about shipping and I'm like, is it really that great? But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, what other brands out there are, are doing similar things? Well, and I think James, you know, looking at, you know, Kind of looking at the reason I'm thinking of because you just mentioned the hoodies and t-shirts and sweatshirts. Um, you know, another great brand, it's upcoming brand Lane Seven, as an example. They are not only provide uh, and do direct to consumer sales, but they also a supplier for a lot of uh, blank garments to a lot of finishers here in the United States. And they've done a tremendously amazing job as well. And I want to give them um, a big shout out for really looking at how to create their product, again, not only just from sustainable fabrics, but really consuming water, uh, I'm sorry, optimizing how much the water consumption is, how much they are spending energy-wise in terms of in in, in their warehouses uh, and as well as in their dye houses. So, I mean, how much to minimize the waste in terms of the contaminated water. I mean, they've done a really great job uh, we worked with them uh, quite a lot, and I, I've tested their product among most of the distributor or, or blank providers that are existing in the United States. And by far, not only are they winning quality-wise, they are truly winning the sustainable story as well. So question for both of you. What sparked your passion? Like, what was the moment that sparked your passion for fashion? Okay, so what started it for me... Um... You know, my mother has said before that um, when I was in the womb, and this is definitely TMI, so I apologize, but when I was in utero, um, if I didn't like her outfit, I would kick her more. Um, so, you know, from birth, I was um, you know, on the on the fashion train. But I remember as a little girl, you know, sitting on my mother's um, bedroom floor and pouring over her Vogue magazine issues. And um, that started me on the path of 
cutting up my Barbie dresses to make new garments. And then, um, you know, my mother would take me shopping with her and I'd pick out outfits so that I wouldn't kick her anymore. And, you know, I, I ended up being the little fashion consultant for um, my aunts and my grandmothers. And um, it's just sort of been an ever-present thing in my life. Um, and now I am, I wear pretty much head to toe black every day, but I am very much a shoe girl. And um, I have far too many pairs of shoes, but they're all very high quality. So, you know, I wear them season after season and um, I love them. Yay. Why don't you go next? Perfect. Thank you. Well, um, my passion, as I mentioned, to be for fashion since I was four. Uh, I actually have no idea where it came from. The only uh, logical uh, explanation I could give it's because back in the days there was a um, series of um, movies, series was called Simple Maria, and it was all about a, like soap opera type of a thing. It was all about fashion and and how she was sewing and doing all of those things. That is the only thing I can think of. Why did I decide at four years old I'm going to be a fashion designer? But I think what really drove me to become more passionate about it, and I knew that there's nothing else in the life I will be except fashion design um, and be in the fashion industry. And I think what really prone to me is the ability to create an ability to recreate things from old clothes um, that, you know, when we were growing up, we were not as uh, able to go and buy and start shopping. So a lot of times, most of my clothes was hand downs from my brother or my mom's old skirts and jackets and things like that. And so the only way for me to stay updated and current is to actually create new outfits out of those, out of that clothes. So I learned how to sew and create patterns fairly young um, so that I could truly stand out and be an individual uh, of my own, even if, if in a gray crowd. At that time, we were still back in wearing uniforms. So I wanted to make sure that I do stand out. And so that was my way um, to be shining as my as an individual through individual and creating to show the individuality through my outfits that i've created and so just ever since just been um ongoing thing and i don't stop that's incredible you know i what struck me there is that you you've talked so much so far about sustainability and it sounds like from the get-go you've been on the sustainability track and you know, I did I did a little internet sleuthing about um, as a as a good co-host should, um, and I saw that you are a designer yourself, and um, you have a line of garments that can be worn multiple different ways. So instead of you know buying one garment that you can wear one way, and you know there's there's only so far that that garment can go for you, you've flipped that on its head, and you've got one garment that can be worn in you know, countless ways. And it's just, it's so brilliant. So I, I'd love to know, you know, where did you get that idea to, to turn one garment into many? So that was a, a wonderful, that's a wonderful question. And uh, as many of the things that uh, come to me as ideas, it, that an idea came to me in one of my dreams um, and, uh, you know, I do tend to come up with things while I sleep. Um, but one of the things, uh, you know, the best solutions come by the way, uh, when you're sleeping. So, um, but one of the, what solidified my idea was that I was in a, you know, 
in the urge of wanting to come up with what am I going to do as my own brand? Because I always knew I wanted to have my own brand. Um, and, you know, trying to figure out what would be my unique value selling, selling value proposition to the customers and what kind of value can I bring? At that time, I used to drive a convertible Mini Cooper. And so one time I was standing on an intersection turning and then I got just, I don't know, something just, I think it was rain started to drizzle or something and I had to close my top. And so when I was, as I was closing it, the, that was my big aha moment, after, which after that, I you know called my husband immediately and I said, we're going to create a convertible clothing line. And he's like, what does that mean? And the point was that um, I thought about it. If we can convert our cars, as an example, uh, it, to do have them be a multi-purpose for us, why can't we do something for us, who, especially women who is constantly on the go? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a big traveler. And so I also believe that schlopping a huge suitcase of worth of clothes is definitely not an option, but I also don't want to compromise the style because I mean, God forbid, I'm going to be seen in the same thing in the picture twice. I mean, that's not going to work. So <laughs> the idea was how can we create a product that will allow uh, a woman to try to keep her individuality and style, but yet not buying so much of wardrobe that then she'll have to pack or have. Um, and that kind of puts me back into sustainability factor, right? As we keep constantly keep thinking about, well, why sustainability? Why did I even start doing um, kind of thinking sustainability even from the young age? Well, I think it was because we did not have the other options. We did not have the plethora of things, right? Of items that A, we could buy or not because we couldn't afford them. They were just not available. I mean, I grew up in the former USSR, so there was no such a thing. So, you know, everybody wore the same type of dresses and you probably had one of each and that was the end. You had one wooden toy and that would be the end of it. So um, <laughs> the, uh, which kept us, but it keeps the creativity going because of that. And I think that is the biggest um, pain point, I think, in today's environment when we are constantly putting pressure on brands, which we should, um, and companies to become more sustainable. What we are not doing that I need, to, I think we, I want to emphasize on this call for all of us, for all of us listeners, because we all are consumers, is that we are not putting pressure on ourselves to upbring the next generation in the way that we were brought up back in the days, meaning with less stuff and with ability to value the items that you do have, because not only they're precious, because it's once you buy it, there is not going to be a chance to buy 20 others of the same alike, but at the same time, because it's quality. And so I think that's kind of where, where we as a society starting to miss um, because we're not do, putting that emphasis. I don't see that. I have a young kids, and I, they go to school here in America and we don't have that. And that's it, even though at home I have that and I'm engraving it, we're not unfortunately engraving that in our school systems uh, and everywhere they get praised with little gifts. And what is this kids are going to grow up as thinking continuously that they need more stuff to feel mm -hmm. satisfied. And then if that's going to continue, which we, we already have seen that it's continuing that from the, pre, you know, from Gen Zs and, and going up in kind of younger generations, we're never going to get on that sustainable zero waste or low waste because we still want to consume and constantly consume. 
Right, right. I have a little bit of a off the wall question that I, I feel like is relevant. Correct me if I'm wrong if it's not, but I feel like it is because I have kids too. And I go shopping with them, especially my daughter. My daughter has a fashion of her own and I don't understand it, but it's fine. Like I let her, she gets to pick. And so I, I am genuinely curious when I go shopping with her and like she picks out an outfit or she picks out whatever she like really likes. I am seeing a trend that's happening of things that I remember seeing in the eighties and nineties, like they're like coming back. <laughs> Why is that? Like why does fashion go through these phases of like, all right, because actually, if you remember back in the day in like the 2000s and even the 90s, like things that were popular way back became popular again. And it goes through these like cycles of popular and then it's like goes through this big drought of unpopularity and then it comes back and then it's popular again. Why does fashion do that? That's a phenomenal question. I always ask that to question myself as well. But here I have a couple theories. Theory number one, I don't think that this circularity happens not only with just fashion, but it happens with everybody. History tend to repeat itself. So uh, I think that has to do with just how we are learning from the examples of, of previous generations and try to pivot and make them slightly different and better and bring them as a new ideas. Someone once told me uh, a, a really good new idea, it's old forgotten idea. <laughs> so just you know, bring it back, pivot slightly, make it a little different and it'll be brand new. So I think there is a circularity aspect of that. Um, I think is probably why it's keep coming back. Um, as well as I think in terms of specifically pretending to fashion, it's the the trend, right? Why does the trend constantly circulate? And it's almost like every decade, it will give it its own turnaround. So kind of like a wheel. And I think it has to do with, again, the fact of trying to, when the designers are looking for inspirations, they're not only looking for inspirations from, you know, other designers or nature or everywhere else, but they also look for inspirations from the history, from, from, from back in the days. So, and when they do that, again, it's taking those, classic old elements and then bringing them in into something new and upcoming trends. So we kind of see the traces. It's not necessarily the same 90s as it was 90, really in the 90s. I feel like the 90s that really were did not work, they stayed in 90s. And then the classic, <laughs> the classic 90s are coming back with a new spin. Same thing with for 60s or 80s. We can say the same thing for even 20s, right? There was a recently, I mean, there was even a 1950s trend when we were seeing uh, things were again coming back, but it's the classics things that were coming back and timeless. So this is why I think it's important to kind of going back to the sustainability factor is when we design things that are timeless, they tend to, and you keep them long enough, they tend to be relevant, <laughs> at least in the way from the decade, they'll definitely be very relevant. <laughs> so what's your advice to e-commerce brands that, want to stay timeless um like what should they be looking out for and what tips would you give them today so today when we are uh, even working with e-commerce brands who are new and upcoming one of their three things that we talk about is lean design model and lean design model meaning don't try to do to be good at everything or bring in a plethora of assortment focus on 
what you specifically your target audience needs or how you're solving a problem for them so that they can truly believe in your product. And in terms of creating the quality product to make sure that that product always fits uh, and has the great fit. So emphasize on quality and fit. But in addition to when it comes to styling, think more about essentials, right? Because that's what, when we say something timeless, it's truly something that is essential to have. Um, and yes, as an icing on a cake, you can have this fashion forward trend pieces, but your core base business really some, most of the times needs to be around what that essential timeless collection or uh, product assortment would be, particularly for your customer. Hence where the 80-20 rule comes in, right? Is applying to, especially if you do have a sales data um, that you have generated over years, is to truly uh, analyze it and make the decisions of your assortment and assortment expansions or contractions based on data of what the customer is going to tell you. Because based on sales data, you can learn that there are probably 20% of your current assortments or past assortments will always drive 80% of your sales. And that's what it will be the essential assortment for your specific customer. Love that. I mean, it sounds like, you know, from what you just said, it sounds like fashion almost in my mind, it's almost more than any other industry where it has to be so customer focused because it doesn't make sense to produce what what your customers won't buy. You know, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, I've read stories about how some some brands when they have um, when they have produced things that customers just don't buy, um, that it creates just a phenomenal amount of waste in the world. And, um, you know, I want to get your thoughts on how brands can want to avoid it, but what they can do with that, with that excess stock, um, that they may not be thinking of. Great question. Um, absolutely great question. And I think, you know, one of the first, probably the solutions for the brands or retailers for that matter, is to make better data-driven inventory planning solutions. Uh, and of course, every brand uses data, sales data to make those decisions uh, and bring in product and stock. But when we are looking at the data, I think there's multiple ways of looking at it. One is more of a straightforward, hey, my customer buys this particular product, so I'm going to bring more of that product. Sure. But also looking at potentially where what we like to do with our clients is to take a look at it more in the details of what fabrics is the gar is our clients are gravitating towards our assortment. What embellishments or what type of prints, as an example, they are gravitating mm -hmm. towards. So that when we are building the next upcoming assortments, we minimize the risk of this dead stock because we are trying to create programs around those fabrics or around those prints or around of those finishings and trims or whatever else. So that when we build those programs, we know that the customer already told us, we love this. We love this product. We love this product for because of this particular materials or this particular way that we create this product. So as we create 
and expand that line assortment from those materials, we have less materials that we are potentially going to waste because now we have more styles to put in into this one material, as an example. And at the same time, we are minimizing the risk of the customer not wanting to buy it because we already know they like it. Um, so thinking more on those terms when we are doing kind of product um, assortment creation uh, and planning. Uh, and of course, the inventory planning needs to truly, I, I can't stress more enough that each re retailer and a brand needs to have a data scientist on their team. A data scientist who could truly help to analyze data on a granular levels to make better decisions of how to in plan their inventory. Another great option that we always recommend to kind of, especially for startup brands, is to look at opportunity to be on demand. And on demand gives you that low waste option until you know that, that cus the customer will want to buy this product and they're buying it. Then yes, go ahead and you know invest in the in bulk inventory so that we can bring in, but we bring enough knowing that it's going to sell. To your point, we minimize the waste. Because otherwise, to your point, we have a lot of dead stock. It's not only terrible for businesses because it's a dead, dead cash, right? There's right. no cash flow if you are sitting on this inventory. The moment I always say the inventory is the death of any business. Yeah. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, so but we to your point, what happens with this dead stock after it's no longer relevant? And how do we now... Um, what do we do with it? So a couple of, you know, I like to always push the boundaries and think outside of the box. So of course, a lot of times people would brands would do is they're going to go to liquidators and the liquidators will go to third, you know, third world countries, or they will try to sell them at really cheap discounts somewhere else, you know, so that they can be able to get through that product, which is a great strategy and one way of doing it. But if we want to think about, is there a way to push that envelope a little bit better or a little bit more? is can you take that dead stock and recreate another style out of it? And there is a couple of ways of doing it. Um, we, when we were working for a uh, sports, uh, with a sports licensing retailer, they uh, had a lot of dead stock of hoodies. And so what we ended up doing is we took those, the old hoodies that no one ever wanted to, to, to bring in and wear anymore. We cropped them. And we cut them up and done all of this fun stuff that college students are doing today. And <laughs> all of a sudden, this we were able to sell through all of it <laughs> because now people will, they want it. And to your point, you know, bringing the customer experience, this is where I think there's an opportunity for retailers, especially or brands, to involve their customer to do something with as a DIY project or potentially having a webinar where they can get some of this old stock ahead of time. And then you will teach them how to create a new outfit out of this themselves. I mean, this is a fun way. And I'm like pushing the envelope. How can now we create this unique customer experience? And the customer now says, Hey, and not only I'm buying this cool clothes from this, this people are also brands is also teaching me how to repurpose this clothes and mm -hmm. potentially here's how I'm going to do it. So I think there's there. And again, this is just, hypothetical creative ideas, but constantly thinking of how can we push that envelope to bring a uh, more exciting experience to the customer and um, as well as minimize the ways that we are dealing with. 
I love that idea. I absolutely love that idea. It honestly makes me think about like, I think about a company like Coach who, you know, if you have outgrown a bag or it has fallen apart, you can send it back to them. They will fix it up and they will they will put it on their site as a, a reworked vintage item. Um, and I, I love the idea of like having an event where you say, Hey, if you bought this item, like, here's how you can rework it to suit, you know, the trends today. I think that's a brilliant idea. What else would you say to, I mean, especially like a startup brand where they're thinking about these things um, and maybe on demand isn't an option for them. Would you encourage them to start thinking about things like events or, hey, send us your old items from the get-go, or would you have them wait a while? So it depends. Uh, it will depends on their process and what is there in their capabilities. Because a lot of times when we are talking to a small startup brands, they potentially starting somewhere out of the garage, right? Yeah. Trying to create a product. So a, an ability of taking back inventory potentially might not be an option for them at the, at the at, at start. However, I think there should be an opportunity where they build that into their plan and figuring out, you know, at what point of their business they'll be able to introduce a program, a, a similar program or some sort of other program that would work for their brand, for their uh, customer and for their brand. Uh, however, I think um, in terms of, to your point, how can a startup can also still think about lean is brings up a good question point in my mind is start making sure when you start a business you follow a roadmap of consecutive steps before you jumping into ordering inventory so what i'm seeing uh really often with all of our coaching clients um, and this is usually the first thing that they say to us yay where have you been why didn't you why didn't I put you when I started? <laughs> and the reason is because we, t as, as fashion entrepreneurs, and I was one myself, uh, uh, 2011, even though I had 15 years of experience uh, in, under my belt, I still made the same mistakes because I went after the things that I know and they're fun to do, which is create product. Oh, I'm sorry, design product, create product, place an order, create a website and say, I've launched and woohoo, I'm going to have sales. Well, yeah. unfortunately that doesn't work. <laughs> so, and learning the, the pain points of importance of taking the steps of planning, budgeting, uh, creating a five-year projections, uh, strategizing your sales strategy, marketing strategy, uh, so before you even in thinking of investing in inventory, um, create in setting all of your channels in the way where when you are bringing that inventory, you do making sure that it is going to sell. I think those is going to be taking the important non-sexy, non-fun steps ahead of the fun stuff is what going to help a lot of the startups to minimize waste in the inventory that they potentially will bring that will not sell. And truly understand your customer. I think we, as entrepreneurs uh, in fashion industry specifically, we do not spend enough time in planning. We spend way too much time in executing. But so instead of actually trying to figure out the plan first and testing out the bits and pieces with the 
consumers, focus groups, surveys, to knowing that when we do make that investment in our inventory, we are for sure going to sell it. I have a quick question for you. When we think about what brands are doing today to provide a better and more memorable shopping experience, outside of like, like, oh, here's a product that we recommend for you based on your previous history, what are some innovative things that brands can do today to provide a more personal experience with their shopping? I love that. So a couple of um, examples, but and I'd love to really start off with the example that we have implemented for a um one of the largest collegiate um, retailer, as an example. Uh, and we've created something that's called Shirt Bar. And we thought that that was an, an incredible concept, which has pro- was proven that it actually worked really well, uh, where we had to bring in a customer experience, unique customer experience into the bookstores. Now, we all know today bookstores in college campuses are dying out in the sense that no one really needs to go and buy books at college campuses anymore, right? You can buy everything online and a lot of uh, even online courses are going, um, go, sorry, the courses are going into online kind of book um, opportunities, materials. So what happens with those stores today? So thinking about how can we re-innovate the experience of the customer having a reason to go into the stores and buy? What we've created something as a shirt bar where a customer could come in, pick up their favorite sweatshirt and t- or t-shirt of the appropriate assortment that we have slated, and then they can walk up to a shirt bar and pick out of a menu of 50 different items in terms of whether it's a department, whether it's a team, whether it's a mascot, and they can customize it right there while they're standing in the store their sweatshirt with the name drop or a um, mascot or both or whichever way and there's different placements. And it not only created a cool experience because they truly like walk up to a shirt bar that looks truly looks like a bar, but instead of buying a drink, they're buying a shirt and um, giving them the fact that they now becoming a designers themselves is the, it's the liberation of, Hey, I created something unique, right? So talking about individuality um, and be able to truly serve their needs because one of the biggest needs that we have discovered uh, with that retailer is that the biggest pain point of the customer is that when there is a lot of departments and sports were underserved in terms of merchandise, because as a, bookstore that has a limited capacity of real estate, they can't bring 50 different sports or 50 different departments, maybe a t-shirt or two, but not everything else. So giving them an option to customize, not only were we able to give them a great experience, we were also working on little minimizing waste because now no, we no longer have to have all these hoodies and all these t-shirts and 50 different sports. We just have to take one and then we just have the name drops appliques, which are also sustainable and were also created out of sustainable materials that we can truly apply them right there on demand and on the go. So I think I, I love to share that story because I think that was a hands-on experience of truly um, working with uh, Scott Killiam, whose idea that was initially, uh, and really build this um, short bar experience together. I thought that was really wonderful. That's really that's the first cool. time I've ever heard anything like that. Yeah, like, well, and it makes it um, less disposable for the buyer, too. You Absolutely. Know, if I'm a kid in college and I have designed my own 
sweatshirt for the School of English because that's, you know, I was an English major. Um, I would be a whole lot more likely to hang on to that post-college. A hundred percent. A hundred. Because now it becomes personal, right? Now we've connected right. the product on the personal level to the consumer. Right. It's an emotional component. Mm-hmm. Really love that example. We're going to do something a little different just for a, just for a second, okay? Because we're getting close to time. But I, I I normally would like weave in some like fun little engaging questions where people can get, but you've been just dropping amazing insights here. So I just want to keep going. And one of the things that I think a lot of brands struggle with or they try to, they they test this out, but they, they might fail. And that's like using an influencer to like amplify their products and their brands. And, you know, one brand that comes to mind that does the opposite of this, they use a scarcity tactic that we're all very familiar with here at Flip and that's Aviator Nation, where they do uh, scarcity drops, but they also have like their primary buyers are these big celebrities in Hollywood. And it became such a big thing that like it like was this massive trend on TikTok and Instagram to where now like it feels like the entire state of California like is always trying to find these new product drops that Aviator Nation does. And I'm curious like what you what your take is on it. Like what is your take on the idea of the influencer marketing piece to this? Because you did say like you gotta think through that piece before you start thinking about product. So and this is a lot of times where a lot of people play in the fashion world, from what I understand, is there. So what's your take on what you would tell brands if they're exploring influencer marketing? So I would really start off making sure that it is truly been tested as part of your uh, marketing strategy so that and that not every brand will benefit or ROI from influencer marketing. Um, so as much as we really want to see the conversion from influencer marketing uh, being sky high, it does not work for everybody and it does not convert as high as we think. So I think it's an important to, opportunity to truly think through whether this is, this is a strategy that's right for your brand. And if it is, because in some cases it is, depending on who your customer is and what your customer gravitates towards and where they're getting inspiration or shopping ideas from, and if that is the case, then I think definitely looking at and making sure that the influencers that you find or you are approaching to collaborate with are truly speaking to your customers and being sure that they're on target with that. Because I think what a lot of times why I think it fails is because we go in and we're just going to create this avatar of potential influencers that we want to get but the avatar is usually so broad because we are trying to get the micro influencers because it's just more economical and especially mm -hmm. for the smallest startup brands is what they can afford. And then it becomes a mixed, confusing message to the customer because the customer is very smart today too. They understand that if I pay as a brand $10,000, I can get all these influencers to try out my product and say, hey, how cool it is. But is it really, is it real? Like customers today is truly looking for authenticity. And so I think it's important that if you are going with influencer marketing, that A, you align with the right influencers that truly has the trust and from the consumer that you are actually trying to target. 
and that it's as the marketing of it has to be as genuine as possible. I think that's when you act truly can win in this particular strategy. I think I read a stat one time that said, and I don't even know if this is true or not, but hold on. I hopefully it is. But I think I read somewhere that if a some of the big influencers that are out there, like so not the micro influencers, that if they had 10 products, they would actually only try about two of them. Which means like <laughs> 80% of what you see from big influencers is absolutely garbage. <laughs> well, I mean, look, it's a job, right? So they're, they get, mm-hmm. they're getting paid for it. And it's, I mean, it's rightfully so same way as anybody else would hire somebody else to do any kind of work for them. So I think that's why it's really, truly important that I think if you're really trying to build that that trust and momentum with your customer is to find those influencers that are truly going to um, validate your product because they also believe in it. So listen, we are at time. Um, yeah, you've been amazing. I'm definitely going to be hitting you up to because I want I want you to come on again because this was so good. Um, <laughs> like we did, Yeah, so we're going to have to do this again for sure. This time, like maybe I won't even show up. I'll just have Christina um, <laughs> do her thing. <laughs> Christina, you were great too. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Yay. And if, if the audience wants to learn more about you, um, or like hit you up for like a consulting, what, where can they do that? So we do have, uh, of course, um, we can have, we have a website, Yushkova at Yushkova at design.com. <laughs> I've been talking a lot today. Um, and we'll have a, a link with James so that you'll be able to uh, find us. However, you know, I also are very present on LinkedIn. So I tend to do uh, through our company page, write a lot of articles as well as give away free tips uh, to our fellow community uh, so that our, the brands and the retailers can also hopefully benefit from the knowledge that um, we have to share uh, as well as uh, twice a week, uh, I'm sorry, twice a month, we host a uh, executive roundtable. And it's a network event that uh, this is my way of giving back to a fashion community where we invite uh, executives, startups, anybody who is in the fashion industry in term, and who is trying to create a brand or already created a brand. Or we also have uh, executives coming in from well-known brands who share their challenges as well as their um, wins so that we can celebrate the wins and learn from one another of what they've done right. And we could all uh, participate in a collaborative discussion of how we can solve some of those challenges so that we can, again, learn from one another. I'm a big believer that if uh, sharing the expertise so that we can build a community of, and really upbring, upbring the next generation within this uh, within fashion industry. So where do they learn more about that executive um roundtable stuff because i i mean i think that that's massive value that you just provided mm-hmm. where can they learn more about that uh we do have those uh, postings on our company linkedin page uh so that we could be able to which james i'm going to send you a link to that as well so that when we do host them uh, you can sign up uh, people can sign up and uh join us on our on those roundtables awesome great. James, can we, can we finish with, um, you know, kind of a silly question? Absolutely. All right. I love I, silly questions. I know you do. <laughs> so I've got a little ad lib for us. Um, 
I'm I'm sure you're familiar with the meatloaf song. Um, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Let's replace the word love with fashion. So I would do anything for fashion, but I won't do blank. For me, um, just to kick us off, I would never bleach my eyebrows. I would never do that for fashion. I know that that was a big thing. Um, oh gosh, I want to say last summer, um, but I would never, I would never bleach my eyebrows. Okay. Wow. That's a, that's a good one. Um, I would do anything for fashion, but I would never, I think I would never be ordinary. I love that. Ooh, I like that. I'm all about that. You know, like Christina knows this. I talk about like unconventional mm-hmm. stuff all the time. And so when you had mentioned that when we very first started the podcast, I was like, this is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all have to shine our individuality. I mean, it's what makes the world a better place. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah, you've been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've not yet subscribed to the podcast, please do so. Give us a star rating and let us know what you want to hear or hear from who you want to hear from on the show next time. See you next week. Thank you.